0: Welcome to episode 32 of Mental Health by Talklink. Here's what's coming up.
1: The idea is that the bookshop and um, rentals from the counsellors who work in our community of practice means that we're kind of sustainable and we put all of that money back into the business.
0: Hi, I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Amber Rules of Rough Patch which is one of the few brick-and-mortar mental health social enterprises in Australia. Amber is a psychotherapist, a supervisor for other clinicians, and she's a very passionate businesswoman with a bit of a bleeding heart, keen to make the world a better place. Our conversation with Amber today will take a deep dive into the world of the social enterprise that she's launched. We look at the gap in the community that it fills, and we'll share Amber and her team's vision. Today's podcast is brought to you by talklink.com.au, a modern and approachable mental health directory helping Australians connect with the right mental health practitioners. All of the practitioners, so that's psychologists, psychotherapists, and counsellors, are available to see clients straight away, so no waiting lists. They're all independent, licensed, and insured, and available for online or in-person consultations. The great thing about TalkLink is that you can see a short video of the therapist's To get to know them a little and check out their training and experience, as well as their pricing in a transparent way to decide whether this is someone that you may like to connect with. Okay, let's dive in.
1: Mostly my day-to-day is um, clinical counselling and uh, looking after clients um, who are impacted by addiction is my specialty. So I've been doing that for about 10 years uh, until we kind of conceived of rough patch and that has now become uh, I guess half of my day to day alongside with seeing my clients.
0: When we had our first conversation, I learned a lot and it would be great if, if we could maybe revisit some of that, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners would get value from that too. You started us on the journey of someone wanting to reach out. So let's say there's a listener and they feel like they're going through something and they want to connect in with someone. Could you just walk us through what the typical journey for someone would look like and maybe talk about some of the pain points that they may experience?
1: Look, I think it's really tricky to get mental health care in Australia if you don't know how to go go about it, Uh, which is really unfortunate because, you know, like physical health, if you're in pain, in this case emotional or mental pain, it's really hard to navigate those kinds of systems. But ordinarily, the way you would do it is go to a GP and talk to the GP about what's going on. And then they would probably refer you to a psychologist. Um, for those of us experiencing, you know, like a, acute mental health crises, we might go to the hospital or we might call a helpline and they might send an ambulance, that kind of thing. But for most of us, we've started at GP. And I guess the GP would then refer us to a psychologist. The first pain point, I suppose, is getting to the GP. Talking to your GP about mental health can be difficult because it's not physical health and it feels a bit weird for some people. And then I guess the next pain point would be getting in to see a psychologist because their wait lists are so long, particularly since COVID. And not only getting in to see them, but finding one that you like. And most importantly, finding one that's sustainable and affordable. Because even though you get a Medicare rebate, I think it's about 84 something dollars at the moment. Uh, most psychologists charge significantly more than that. Some do bulk bill, uh, but ordinarily they're the ones who are booked out for months in advance. And when you do get in to see them, they might only be able to offer you an appointment every three or four weeks. Hmm. So that can be really tricky for people as well, is actually finding someone that they can see and that they can afford to see because you have to pay out of pocket. So say you pay $180 to see a psychologist, Uh, you have to pay that full amount out of pocket And then they may refund you from the high caps machine on the spot, but you're still out of pocket about 90 something dollars. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I remember when we had our first conversation, I mentioned that we dug into the Medicare data a little bit more. And if you look at the number of mental health care plans prescribed by GPs and you look at the number claimed, there's this huge gap. There's about 70% of the consultations prescribed by GPs that aren't being used people are only using a third of their prescribed sessions and that blew our mind when we looked at the data and we thought you know either people are getting cured really fast or there's a bigger issue do you have any thoughts on why people aren't using the plans that the government's sponsoring and giving them
1: i mean i think there's there's a really big disconnect between what the government thinks that people can uh manage and what people can actually manage and again I mean that in terms of sustainability financially um, uh, with wait lists like getting to these places and then the therapeutic relationship is a really really important part of this so I think what a lot of people don't realize is you can't prescribe the same psychologist to every person so a psychologist may need to have specialist training to deal with the thing that you're experiencing I know in Sydney, where I'm from, I'm sure they exist, but I don't know many colleagues who work in the drug and alcohol space. And one of my particular niches is working with the family members of people who use drugs, alcohol, gambling, and other addictive behaviors. And so a lot of my clients come to me and say, I couldn't, I didn't realize this existed. I didn't even realize I could see someone about my loved one's drinking problem, for Mm. example. So I think there's a big disconnect because people get the prescription and it's like, off you go to a psychologist, And that's kind of all there is to it. You're not orientated to what that process might be like. You're not expecting that you're gonna have to pay this big out of pocket expense. You're not expecting that you're gonna have to go onto a wait list. Then you finally get into the room and maybe you don't connect with your psychologist um, or maybe they don't have the specialty kind of knowledge that you need them to have. And so for a lot of people, they don't have the wherewithal, the sort of mental energy to go back into that merry-go-round. And some of the clients that I get, when they make it to me, they've done these three or four or five times in their life, you know, and nothing's really gotten better yet or it has temporarily gotten better. And I think the the other really tricky part of the, the way the kind of current model works in Australia is that you only get 10 sessions to start with. You have to go to your GP for the first six and then you have to go back to the GP and tell them about how you need four more and then you only get four more. You know, we know that psychotherapy takes time. And so I think there's a lot of barriers in the way and that in my mind explains why so few people who are prescribed psychology actually uptake psychology.
0: And that those 10 sessions are super short, particularly if you're having to go to a few people to trial the right connection. Yeah. If you're using yeah. one or two sessions per person and it takes you two, three goes, by the end of that process, you know, you're opening up your heart and soul to that person each time and you're yeah. working through a limited number of sessions. Uh, okay, so yeah. we are... We are preaching to the choir, you and I, Uh, I think for us, that was one of the drivers behind making TalkLink. We just wanted to get that match better. So let's keep going through the journey. So someone's now tried to see someone, what's the next step if they're still not getting support or they're not really finding what they need?
1: Yeah. So I think for a lot of people that that's where they exit the system. And and I think also for a lot of people where they just write off psychology and counseling as useless, Mm. you know, or as just talking and and what's the point of just talking i can just talk to my my mom or my partner or my kids or whatever you know so i think a lot of people have really poor experiences and and i don't think that's anyone in particular's fault i think it's a systemic problem but you know one of the things i think counselors and psychologists can do better is kind of orientate people to that process so a big part of the work i do in the first session is just helping people understand the flaws in our healthcare system and uh, I guess come to terms with the best way to work around them and encourage them not to lose their kind of steam if they can. Um, But yeah, for a lot of people that's where they would exit. And then of course their problems get progressively worse until they have to go uh, do that merry-go-round again. And a lot of people will put off um, getting sort of counseling or psychological support because they can't afford it or because it's just too hard you know they've got a life to live and they just need to get on with it and unfortunately that means that people come into counseling eventually much more distressed than if they'd been able to get support in the earlier days of their mental distress
0: how in your experience is the system set up because i know you've done some work in the space as well to cater for people who have gone through the merry-go-round as you say a few times and are now in a really really vulnerable place.
1: Yeah. Look, unfortunately, I don't think we do it well at all. And uh, again, I think in those NGO and publicly funded services, you just do the best with what you have when you're a therapist. And, um, and a lot of those places are under-resourced, underfunded, understaffed, under-supported, you know, and it's a difficult system to work in. And so that makes it even more difficult to provide really good care to people because you, you yourself are struggling um but you know I think for the for a person who has engagement with any type of psychological service whether it's public or private um there's a lot of coming in and out and that's fine because that's also how our brains work right we kind of learn by experiencing and then going away and kind of condensing what we've learned and coming back that kind of thing but I think If we were able to do it better, if we were able to be a better holding space for clients and help them understand better, then I suspect um, that kind of acute crises would be reduced. And certainly from what I understand from the research, although this is not my area of expertise, um, early intervention works, you know, supporting people before it gets bad works. So and I think one of the things that is really left out of the mental health conversation um, generally is the clinicians who work in the practices or in the funded services because if we're not in a good headspace, if we can't provide compassion and patience and support and even just the time to explain how all of this stuff works, what chance does a client have? They don't understand how these things work. And so I think that's a really big important part of the puzzle as well is making sure our clinicians are better resourced.
0: Yeah. I want to go back to what you said earlier. If someone's listening and they've got a family member who might be struggling with addiction, you talked about doing therapy specifically with them. And Mm. I want to know more about that. What would you do and what work is there to be done?
1: Yeah. Look, it's different than sort of traditional counseling or psychotherapy in that generally speaking, you don't do longer-term work with those types of clients. It's more about orienting them to the healthcare system and helping them figure out ways to get support either for themselves or for their loved one. Um, Many of my clients, I will say, have come to me for support with a family member and then ended up staying to do their own therapy. Um, But that's kind of, I guess, separate to what they come for in the first place, which is to kind of try and understand how they can help the person who either isn't ready for change or who wants change but doesn't know how to go about it. And oftentimes people particularly who've experienced addiction uh, have been around the merry-go-round of trying to get treatment and get, get support and it is incredibly difficult. And so of course this causes a massive amount of strain in families. So generally when a family member first comes in we're talking about just the history of what's been going on over many years ordinarily and the impact it's had on them, especially if there's children or other vulnerable people in in the family system. We talk about how to support them. And uh, there's a lot of, I guess, attempting to understand why the person is behaving the way they are, you know, and why addiction has become such a big part of their life. And um, trying to find ways for the family member to look after themselves, while being, I guess, moderate with the person who's using. So not completely cut them off, but not allow them to behave in ways that is really detrimental to the rest of the family. Mm. Another part of what I do with family members is orient them to uh, what supports are available for them and what supports are available for their children or you know, for other family members and help them understand. Uh, for a lot of my clients, it's helped them understand how rehab works people are quite frightened of rehab they think it's you know what they see in the movies and so just helping them understand what rehab is like and that it's not some big scary thing Um, although it is I mean you know I really acknowledge it is scary for a lot of people but um, I think orient uh, taking the time to orient people to these things is really supportive in and of itself not necessarily therapeutic but helps them kind of know where they're, what they're asking of the person they care about, uh, where they'll be sort of shipped off to if they agree to go to therapy, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. And we've had previous conversations with um, professionals on addiction and the theme of family and friends comes out time and time again. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like this really complex balance because friends and family are there to support and the person going through addiction really relies on that but they can also be enablers of behavior. So what do you do to work with your clients to help them untangle what is supporting and what is enabling behavior and, and and what's your experience working with that?
1: I mean, the short answer is it takes time, you know, it takes a bit of time to work that stuff out with someone. I, um, I have make, made the choice myself to move away from the word enabling, because I think it puts too much responsibility on the family member who, who doesn't know anything about this stuff, you know? What it is is a group of, a family system is a group of people engaged in making meaning together, you know, making meaning of the world and understanding how everything works and what they mean to each other and that kind of thing. So um, I think, understandably, you know, it's one of those older words that maybe is not so useful anymore, but the way I prefer to look at it is helping them understand why addiction has shown up in a family system, what it's helping the family with, like what it's alerting the family to, And a lot of the times the person with the addiction is not meaning to, you know, this is all sort of subconscious stuff, is trying to work through stuff that has happened in the family system. So very often this kind of trauma has happened somewhere, or very often there is breakdown in relationships or you know, something else that has is, is meant that the family system isn't coping the way perhaps um, family systems do. And so uh, addiction often shows up and says, hey, there's something wrong here. <laughs> we need to sort this out, you know. But so I think looking at the, the, the addicted person as the quote unquote problem is not the full picture. I think they bring something to the equation that helps the whole family as a system understand that something needs to change. And when you help family members understand it like that, as opposed to you're being too soft on them, you need to be harder on them. You know that that is much more palatable for someone to go. Oh, okay, I've got some responsibility in doing things in a certain way that will help this whole family system change.
0: Mm. I like that. Does that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, but even as you're mapping it out, I'm putting myself in the place of uh, a family who would be struggling with a loved one going through addiction and. It's actually a terrifying thought from that perspective to think, oh, this is a broader issue, and it's like, well, I don't know, some part of of your psyche might be like, Well, there is no there's nothing to see here, move on. Like um, Yeah,
1: yeah. That's a really great observation because I think what often happens, and this is why I don't like the word enabler, because What often happens is people get incredibly defensive when you bring this idea to them that this is a family problem. Addiction is a family disease, not an individual disease. People get incredibly defensive about that, especially parents. And I really understand why, because people, I believe, although lots of people might disagree with me on this, I believe that people are usually doing their best. And to hear from somebody, particularly a quote unquote professional, to hear from someone that this is not just about the person who's using drugs. This is about all of you. It can be really jarring and really confronting. So I really understand why it's tough for people. And that's part of the skill of being a therapist, I guess, is presenting information in ways that feels most palatable.
0: Yeah. Now, you've made your own path on this, and I want to dive into that. You decided to launch Rough Patch. Tell us what Rough Patch is and what you think that is addressing.
1: Yeah, sure. So we opened Rough Patch uh, in August of 2020. It's a, it's a, an affordable counselling service based on a Canadian model um, by a wonderful woman called Kate Gowan. She's a social worker in Canada, and it was her idea. Um, and the Canadian healthcare system is kind of analogous to the Australian insofar as they get, you know, they have a similar kind of Medicare system, although they get much less service than we do. So I think it works out for them about two sessions with, with a psychologist rather than at ten. So Kate had this great idea. Um, she, like me, had worked in kind of counts, outpatient counselling services for a long time and could see that people were really struggling to afford uh, counselling for more than a couple of sessions. And she had the idea that if we can offer service less expensively, people can use their either their insurance or their Medicare to get more sessions. And so her version, uh, Hard Feelings, was born and uh, She understood that in order to be able to offer these uh, sessions less expensively, that there would need to be other forms of income. So the idea, and this is what we've done with Rough Patch, is we have got a a mental health bookshop that sells a a curated selection of books. So it's not just every self-help book on the planet; it's stuff that someone in our community of practice has read and recommends. And then we have other self-care items. You know, we have things like. you know, candles and weighted pillows and, you know, nice self-care items, nice mugs, tea, that kind of thing. So even if you don't need or want counselling, you can still come into a space, learn a bit about mental health, get resources, buy products, um, and in turn support Rough Patch with that sort of revenue stream that we don't get from the government. So uh, when I started it up, there was the kind of, I guess, possibility of us becoming a registered charity, Uh, But that comes with a lot of red tape and a lot of kind of, I guess, just difficulty and extra work. And because I've been self-employed for many years, even before I was a therapist, I knew that running it like a business was my strength. So we decided to stay a social enterprise. And and that uh, structure in Australia is a bit different than America and Canada. Um, We don't have sort of, uh, as far as the government is concerned, we don't have a business entity or a company entity called social enterprise. So we're technically a for-profit business, but we commit to operating like a social enterprise, which basically just means we make money for good. And I will say we don't make a lot of money, you know, especially not in our first year of operating. But the idea is that the bookshop and um, rentals from the counsellors who work in our community of practice means that we're kind of sustainable and we put all of that money back into the business. And then the other part of Rough Patch is the actual counselling. So... We've got a team, I think we've got about 14 at the moment, counsellors who work with us. And uh, they effectively rent rooms from Rough Patch, but they rent them very, very inexpensively. And any private practice counsellor can tell you that that the overheads of being a counsellor is quite expensive. You know, it's not just room rent, but also clinical supervision is incredibly expensive. And you have to do about 15 hours of that a year, maybe $150 or $200 a pop. You have to do a certain amount of uh, professional development. So you might spend fi- anywhere from $500 to $5,000 a year doing professional development. And there's insurances, uh, practice management software, computers, you know, Zoom subscriptions, all that stuff. So it is quite expensive to be a private practitioner. So we reduce the cost not only of the room rentals, but all of those wraparound things by offering free or very low cost service. So we, because we're a collective, we can... Uh, ask people to support us by giving us free or very low cost training. Or if we need to, we can pool our resources and have a trainer come and see us. And, uh, and you know, between the sort of 15 of us that becomes more affordable. Rough Patch also provides um, lots of free practice management resources. Um, and I'm always here, you know, I've managed the day to the day of the practice. So I'm always here to give people support, advice, um, and, uh, just older to cry on or someone to run something past so it makes private practice less lonely as well which is another thing i think that people in private practice find difficult so those two things together are the main parts of our business i guess we we offer uh, counseling on a sliding scale between 60 and 90 dollars per session and of course the counselors can do that because their costs are reduced and we also have this sort of de space where people can walk in have a bit of a browse through the books, um, you know, have a look around, have a chat with whoever's in the shop. And then if they don't need or want counselling, they can, you know, get some mental health access. And if they do, and this happens quite a lot, is we have people come in and kind of have a look around the shop and then we'll turn around and say like, oh, hey, I was just wondering, maybe you could tell me a bit about the counselling. And so we've had quite a few clients come through that way. So it, it makes the entry point easier. You know, it doesn't feel as scary to walk into a a sort of a counselling practice and inquire about counselling, which I think for a lot of people is really important because counselling isn't terribly well understood, I don't think, or psychology, you know? And so having a place where people can ask questions without feeling like they have to call and do it very formally on the phone. And oftentimes those practices are answered by a receptionist rather than the actual mental health professional. And so I think people like to ask questions of a counsellor or a psychologist, and often can't do that so we make that really accessible for people
0: sounds like an amazing offering and it sounds like really cool work that you're doing to put this into perspective um, for our listeners you said that your counsellors charge between 60 and 90 dollars for a consultation what is a typical consultation cost for a counsellor and how much of a discount are you offering there for
1: you know it does depend of course on on whatever the the, the market rate varies, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, but I think we're offering on average about a third of the cost of what it would cost to go and see a counselor and maybe even more in terms of a psychologist. So, there are sorry, times... as,
0: as a discount, so you're offering like a 30 yeah. percent drop on what you would normally pay.
1: No, like a 70 percent drop.
0: <laughs> oh wow.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: but but are your counselors still getting paid the same amount because you're absorbing these things through the overheads, or are your counselors actually agreeing to work for a lower fee because of the bigger picture that they see here?
1: Yeah, so it's kind of both. Um, counselors definitely join us because they feel passionately about the model and about affordable and accessible mental health care. So it it is definitely that they are sacrificing. Um, I guess you know they get paid an hourly wage that's about the same as what the award wage that you get paid in a, a, a non-government organisation, you know, like a, an outpatient counselling service. So that's called the SHADs Award. I assume that's national, but in at least in New South Wales, it's called the SHADs Award. And I think, I, you know, I've worked at different places, um, so it can vary a little bit, but I think the SHADs Award at the moment is about $39 an hour, something like yeah, that.
0: It's not a lot of and money, is it?
1: It's really not. And and it doesn't kind of, uh, in my opinion, it's really, you know, some of my colleagues have got PhDs, you know, have done two or three degrees and then they get paid $10 an hour. Now, it, I think that like, you know, I'm an anti-capitalist. So I think there's a lot of room for, uh, you know, some people to be earning less or more, or, you know, I think outside of the money side of it, I think that uh, it's really important we get paid enough because of the the difficulty of our job, like, and, and the amount of time and money that we have to spend becoming qualified enough. Like you don't walk out of a university degree ready, like an excellent counselor. It takes years to become a good counselor, you know? So I think that's a really difficult thing for a lot of people in our industry. But is yet you've what, got,
0: sorry, I'm just, I'm going back to that. Yet you've got staff on hand that have PhDs that are working for $39 an hour. So why are they doing that?
1: because they believe in the work, because we're all a bunch of like bleeding hearts, (laughs) which, you know, is wonderful. It's such a great, lovely thing that so many of my colleagues do this work because they believe in it and they believe that uh, counselling makes better, not only individuals, but communities. And because it's wonderful work, like the thrill of getting to support someone and getting to connect with people on really a deep level, it's out of this world. Like it's a, you know, those, those kind of adrenaline people who like love jumping out of planes and stuff like that. We're sort of like that, except with feelings, Mm. (laughs) you know, so we love the opportunity to like really get in there with someone and, you know, really understand what it's like to be them and help them change their perspective if that's useful. And, you know, so we love that stuff. And so any counselor who loves being a counselor will tell you that they that's kind of what feels good about this work. And so a lot of our counsellors are here because, yes, they want to support people because they understand it's good for people and good for communities.
0: Do you offer that sort of reduced rate to everyone or are you basically triaging and deciding this person may be more vulnerable or they tell you, I don't have cash, and then you sort of adjust it from there?
1: Mm. So we, just, uh, we allow people the dignity of choosing their fee for service within our sliding scale. So between $60 and $90, if you come to us and say, I need to pay $60, we say, sure, no questions asked, no problem. There are some organisations, and and this isn't a criticism, I think they need to run their business the way they run it for whatever reasons. But a lot of businesses, I'm sorry, NGOs will ask people to provide proof of income um, and, and sort of show, you know, like pay slips or bills or bank statements. And I just kind of felt like that was really invasive. And so... We just work on the, uh, the assumption that uh, a client will pay $60 and if they pay more, that's fantastic and that's really supportive for our counsellors um, because, you know, it, that, that was right and fair. Uh, but a lot of ca- uh, clients we know that, that they can't afford that and so that's okay with us.
0: In your, in your experience, because, you know, you're an expert at reading people, do you think people take advantage of this or do you think that they legitimately pay a fair amount of what they can afford
1: you know i think it's i think it's probably both honestly we've had uh, this is a conversation we had a lot in the early days of rough patch is you know how do we police this and my attitude has always been like i don't want to police all I, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt and, and trust that people will do the best by us when they understand the way that works and why we're doing what we're doing and for the most part, I think that has been enthusiastically supported and received by our community. And most people, in my understanding, if they can pay the most, they pay the most. And that's really lovely. There's certainly been some people, I think, but I think they're in the minority who've, you know, we, we had one person kind of say, oh, I thought you were supposed to be affordable. <laughs> and and I understand that affordable is a, uh, you know, it's a subjective term. What's affordable to me may not sure. be to you. And that's okay. I totally understand that. But, yeah, you know, I think some people uh, will always um, take as much as they can, but for the most part, I, I don't think that's happening.
0: Yeah. Is is it sustainable and is it scalable?
1: Yeah, great question. Sustainable? Uh, look, my short answer is I don't know. And so Rough Patch very much is an experiment. We've given ourselves five years to see if it's sustainable and scalable. You know, in terms of scalability, I don't know that that's my priority because um, I don't think this is something that could be franchised by the same person, if that makes sense, um, unless we were to receive some philanthropic kind of funding. And I think that's what makes this model a little bit difficult, is that uh, you have to have, a, I think, a certain skill set to be able to set up something like this. So I know that one of my strengths is helping people understand why we do what we do and what's important about it. And I think helping people feel my passion for it. And so I think if you were somebody who wanted to set up your own version of Rough Patch, which we very much hope people will do, you know, and that's, I guess, longer term part of our plan is offering support and, uh, and consulting to people who want to set up their own version of Rough Patch. But I don't think that Rough Pat will ever be a, um, a kind of a brand, although, you know, never say never, I guess. But I think it, it works better as a smaller uh, community sort of run offering as opposed to a big uh, funded uh, undertaking. Mm. But sustainably wise, you know, I think we're really on track. There are things that would make our lives significantly easier and significantly more sustainable. So if we had, for example, uh, a building, you know, a premises that we knew we could stay in for an extended period of time and that we knew that the rent wouldn't uh, increase each year and that kind of thing, that would significantly change uh, our, our capacity. And we'd be, offer, be able to offer more, either lower cost or free um, offerings, things like group therapy or, you um, you know, group programs, we'd be able to do all of that if our overheads remained static. And I think that's one of the struggles of a, any business is all of the startup costs are very expensive. So in Canada, they were given a lump sum of money from a, a university called Ryerson. And Ryerson basically funded their first year of uh, of operation. I think it was a pretty, uh, what's the word, modest amount, you know, for, for starting up a business. But um, of course, we're very good at making things stretch and kind of running on the smell of an oily rag when you've worked in NGOs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. If anyone is listening and they're in the inner west of Sydney and they have a space that they're prepared to work with, uh, with Amber and Amazing Vision on, now's the time. Reach out either via... uh, Getting on the ground floor. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I hope someone is listening and they're like, well, as a matter of fact, I have an office block.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that that would be incredible. It would just set us up for so much longer. And, you know, I think any small business owner knows that if you, if the basics are in place, you can focus your energy elsewhere, you know? So I, I work for Rough Patch pro bono, like I don't, I don't receive a wage from Rough Patch and I probably, you know, realistically, I probably work, uh, I hope my supervisor's not listening to this, I probably work 60 hours a week, you know? both the, my clients and then I work for rough patch on top of that pretty much yeah. full time yeah. so you know those that that type of security wh- where we could just say okay we know that in for the next 10 years we're going to be able to stay here and we won't have to go through the stress of moving and paying for moving and all of that that means that I can focus my energy on the stuff that I'm good at you know
0: What do you think would it mean for every city in Australia and maybe, you know, broader in the world to have the equivalent of a rough patch centre? What would it mean for them?
1: That's a great question. I think what rough patch is beginning to do, and I say beginning because we've only been around for a little while, um, but certainly what hard feelings have done in Canada is, first of all, create a conversation about mental health that perhaps didn't previously happen, and that is we kind of make it more accessible and less, um, what's the word I'm looking for, less kind of scary or confronting, and so I think that it it will change the way people talk about mental health, but I also think that, you know, practically speaking what Rough Patch does is take the strain off the free and low-cost services in our area because the people who can pay a little bit, Will come and see us because, you know, our, our cohort of clients, generally speaking, people kind of under 35, um, you know, probably 80 or 90 percent women um, and people who, from what I can observe, care about mental health and kind of understand uh, the mental health landscape a little bit. And so a lot of our clients enthusiastically come and see us because they want to support our mission and because they understand they're taking the pressure off other services that may, that they can leave for people who really do need free service, you know. So that's a really cool thing about the model, I think, is that it offers something else in terms of access and conversation, but it also means that those chronically overloaded public services hopefully can get a bit of a break
0: because mm. my i mean my thoughts at this point is um <laughs> it's almost like you're this romantic dreamer with an amazing vision and i think it's i think it's a really great idea and it, wouldn't it be great if there's more people trying to connect you know people who really need mental health support in the way that you are i, I commend what mm. you're doing it's incredible
1: thank you so we we also offer an EAP program, which for people who don't know, stands for Employee Access Program. Um, and ordinarily big companies who can afford it uh, will have a, an external organization that provides counseling and mental health supports, things like, you know, training and workshops and stuff like that, that kind of uh, build the, the mental health and the emotional literacy of their workforce. And so then if something happens at work and someone needs a bit of counselling support, they can anonymously seek uh, counselling through the EAP program. I think the difficulty with this for micro and small businesses is that they just can't afford it. And even just the hourly fee to see an EAP uh, therapist through an EAP program is is expensive for a micro or small business. So we've started an EAP program, uh, which basically charges a one-off fee, which is quite low to a business and then we go out and tell them all about EAP as well as their staff. Uh, We kind of tell them what we can do for them, how we can support them, answer any questions their staff might have. We also throw in a free half an hour workshop about something that was useful for them. So it might be um, communicating effectively, managing mental health at work, um, self-care and looking after yourself, work-life balance, that kind of stuff. And then they just pay uh, a fee each time their uh, employee seeks counselling through rough patch. And uh, it's much less than the fee if you were going through a traditional EAP program. And then there's no monthly kind of retainers or anything like that. So if your client, um, sorry, if your staff use one session a year, you get charged for one session a year. So we're hoping that this will mean that micro and small businesses can afford to kind of have uh, mental health support in place for their staff that aren't too expensive.
0: Yeah, it's a great idea. And that is a gap. EAPs are usually very expensive. Um, is there any reason why a business in Melbourne or Brisbane wouldn't be able to just use your services online?
1: There's no reason. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I'm very much a psychotherapist in that I think face-to-face is I mean, if I'm being honest, it's probably my preference, you know, yeah. but I do yeah. think there's something more powerful about being able to be in a room with someone. Um, but having said that, for something like EAP, I think Zoom works incredibly well. And so, yes, there's no uh, there's no kind of borders. And that's the joy of being a social enterprise and not having government funding is that we actually see our clients via Zoom as well. So wherever you are in Australia, you can access counselling through Rough Patch if you're happy to do it via Zoom.
0: Amber, thank you for your time. Uh, you're doing really cool stuff. We wish you well. Uh, and um, we'd love to see where you evolve and where your business goes from here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I really appreciate uh, being able to talk about Rough Patch and you know, really encourage anyone if they want to understand more about how we work to get in touch with us. Um, And if you just want some counselling and a bit of support, get in touch. We've got a team of counsellors who really love what they do and would love to sort of chat.
0: Brilliant. Thanks so much, Amber. Thank you. Okay. Well, that's it for today. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Amber and you can find her at talklink.com.au. See you soon.